0: Yes, yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about emotional wholeness uh, and let me frame this just by beginning uh, with a story. So just before Christmas, the BBC phoned me up and they say, we would like you to comment on one of the most ridiculous pieces of research that's been done this year. And uh, they said basically Virgin, the company, have done this piece of research where they've asked people, what role did you play in your nativity play when you were a kid and how well have you been doing in life since then? That was the piece of research. So, uh, anyone play Mary? Any Marys here? Well, a few, yeah. So apparently you're the most popular people in the room. Well done. So, the most popular people, big social media presence. Um, any, anyone play the donkey? Donkeys? No, no donkeys. Paul, Paul was donkey. Well, apparently you're gonna be one of the richest people in the room. So, well done, done that. Um, any wise men, wise men? Yeah, one there, great, yeah. You know what, I started off as a carol singer, then uh, Wise Men 3 got sick, then Wise Men 1 got sick, so I ended up being Wise Men 1, and I could go, behold, a star, I will bring gold. It was great, so basically I've been a social climber ever since that moment. Carol singer to Wise Men 1 in one go. So they say, there's been this ridiculous piece of research done and what we'd like to do is we we want you to go on air and just comment from a psychological perspective, is there any truth in this? Yeah, right, it's totally, totally true. So if, if you've ever dealt with the media, there's really two ways of doing this. Either you just decide whatever they ask, This is what I'm going to say. You've probably seen politicians do that. And whatever the question is, I'm just going to state my thing and bang away. That's it. Or alternatively, my preferred thing to do is I send them the questions. So I wrote some beautiful questions, said, if you ask me these questions, you'll get a lovely interview. And they said, great, well, you'll be on uh, between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Off you go. I was like, great. And then I realized there was a problem. Uh, The problem isn't that I'm telling a blatant Christmas story in February. The problem is um, that they said, no, basically, between 7 and 9, 20 radio stations from all around the UK are going to phone you every six minutes. You're going to have to answer the same questions over and over and over and over again. So for two hours, in my dressing gown, in my study, I'm basically beaming into all these different radio stations. So it's Devon, and then it's Cornwall, and then it's Nottingham, and then it's Edinburgh, and it's all these kind of things. I told my wife about it, and she said, oh, Roger, you should do a different accent for each one, just so that they know, you know, that you're one of them. Um, And it's a terrible temptation, because half my brain thinks I can do accents, the other half knows that I can't. What the other half of my brain really knows is every time I try an accent, I sound like someone who was born in India, raised in Wales, and goes on holiday to Newcastle. That's basically... So all my accents sound a bit like this, which is great. And if you think that's racist, I just challenge you to work out what race that was. So so I I dodge that bullet, no accents, I go in, and basically I go through this absolute freak show of radio shows for two hours. And I never know what's going to be going on when I break so one show I go into, and there's this choir singing Jerusalem. Did those feet in ancient times, you know, all that kind of nationalistic stuff. Another show's having a a huge discussion about the pest that squirrels can be. Uh, I don't know why. Another, another show was, was having a phone-in on asparagus and its various health benefits. Um, and then suddenly they turned to me and I never knew what the presenter was gonna do. Were, were they gonna wanna have a laugh with me? Were they gonna collude with me? Were they gonna attack me? Some of them were kind of really patronizing, so you never quite knew which way it was gonna go. Uh, and the thing was that I'd sent them these beautiful questions And they messed all of them up. Wrong questions, wrong order, wrong thing. I just had to kind of work it out. Apart from one question. There was one question that I put at the end of my list, thinking we probably wouldn't get to it. But there was this one question that all of them absolutely landed perfectly. And the question was this. Having asked all these kind of silly stuff about the nativity, they then said, and is there for some people a deeper meaning behind the nativity? And uh, that allowed me to talk about some of the historical spiritual exercises the church have had, about imagining what it would be like to be at the birth of Jesus and what that would do for your soul and what you would learn from it. Also allowed me to talk about how, yeah, actually, even though the nativity looks like people you know, with tablecloths on their heads with ties wrapped around them, um, there is actually a deeper meaning to that if people want to look at it. So there is a deeper meaning in there somewhere. And the interesting thing is that the same question can be asked about our society's current pursuit of well-being. Uh, You've heard Stuart say a few times, if you've been here for the series, you've heard him talk about how well-being is a big issue now. You go to um, any bookshop and the shelves are stacked with books on how to live a good life, how to find happiness, uh, how to self-help your way into good places. The whole field that I work in, positive psychology, has only existed really for about 20 years, and it's the study of what does the good life, the flourishing life look like? How do we do that? How do we get at it? And the weird thing is, therefore, that both psychology and Christianity, in essence, are kind of pursuing the same thing. They're saying, what we want to do is we want to live an abundant life. We want to know what it means to live life in all its fullness and how do we go about that. And the interesting thing on the psychology side of things is, you know, there's a whole mixed pile of all kinds of people doing work in positive psychology, but many of the leading figures actually are Christians. So they're people of faith who thought, I want to look at forgiveness, I want to think about humility. Some of the work I'll quote on gratitude was done by a very prominent psychologist who also happens to be a Christian. So in in essence, that's the kind of way I, I wanna pose the question today. As we think about emotional wholeness, is there a sort of deeper meaning? I wanna look in the Bible and look at psychology and look at some of the lessons we can draw from those things. So where do we begin with emotional wholeness, emotional integration, bringing things together? Now, um, you know, in, in the Bible, there's four biographies of Jesus Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're all slightly different genres, different ways of looking at who Jesus is. But in the Gospel of Mark, there's an episode where a bunch of people bring their kids to Jesus. Great man. Chapter 10, Mark. And the disciples stop him. They say, No, he's a great man. He can't be messing with this kind of stuff. Children are messy and, and insignificant and a bit inconvenient, and we don't want them coming near this great man with all his wisdom. And Jesus catches an idea that this is what's going on, and so he tells them off. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 10, the words are, Let the children come to me, don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And admittedly, primarily, it is a story about kids. That any community, any society, any group of people that claims to be influenced by Jesus will prize its children. The World Health Organization a few years back said that if only Western societies would put all their money into the first few years of life, many of our major social problems would disappear. If We prized our kids more, celebrated them more, invested in them more. But it's not just a story about kids, it's also a story about adults. Uh, it, it's, it's a kind of story about the kind of relationship Jesus would like to form with the parts of us that maybe feel a little bit childish are a bit insignificant, a bit inconvenient, that the areas of our lives that seem so deeply at odds with who we'd like to be or where we'd like to, to, to get to are the very areas where Jesus wants to draw close and bring blessing. Where we would like to ignore, he would like to bring grace. What we view as our misery, he would like to make into our ministry. Because if we're really honest, our emotions aren't always convenient. Have you ever done that thing where you're trying to be caring and the more caring you try and be, the more resentful you also become? Or you're trying to be grateful and the more grateful you try and be, the more entitled you start to feel inside? Ever had one of those moments where you're just being honest and defending something but at the same time, huge self-righteousness starts bubbling up in you? Sometimes it's tempting to think that our emotions are what we need to get over in order to be good people or even good Christians. We just need to ignore these. I have had some people say that to me at times. Emotions matter but all in the kingdom of God, we just need to get on and get things done. I'm therefore really delighted that as part of this series we've given an entire Sunday morning just to talk about emotional wholeness. I'm also delighted to be talking right across all the alive locations in an ideal world. I would be with you guys too uh, but I hope this blesses you as well as you watch it on the video. Because speaking about emotional wholeness is to talk about integrity, about authenticity, to think about what it means to be truthful and whole in our walk with God. And just one thing to say about emotions before we get into it, from a psychological point of view, there are no positive and negative emotions, not really, not morally speaking, That all our emotions are trying to do something for us. Every emotion we have, they might be disproportionate, they might be too much, too little, a bit distorted, but all of them are trying to do something. Our emotions are actually quite a good guide of how we're really doing inside, how we respond to things. And the reason we call some uh, emotions negative and others positive is because negative emotions have strong action tendencies attached to them. Fear wants to run away. Anger wants to fight. Shame wants to hide. Sadness wants to collapse. Um, Guilt wants to make repair, make things better. All our negative emotions have this sense of they they want to do something for us. They're designed for short-term gain. Here's a problem. Let's solve it quickly. Let's get on with it. That's what they're trying to do. Positive emotions, on the other hand, like a bit of peace, some bliss, some joy, some amusement, some awe, some inspiration, uh, moments of hope, um, all these kind of things. They, they, they don't have those strong action tendencies. You know, It's difficult, what, what do you do when you're feeling peaceful? Mm, not quite sure, It doesn't seem to direct me in a particular way. What positive emotions seem to do for us is on the one hand, they broaden our awareness. So when you're feeling loving, for example, you're much more likely to see and spot other people you haven't seen before, to understand things more deeply. Um, When you're in a moment of peace, you're actually a little bit better at deciding how to prioritize things in that moment. You're less obsessive. So they kind of broaden our awareness in that way, and they also, importantly, build our resilience. So So if you spend the morning actually spending some time, perhaps in loving meditation with God, one of the things you notice is that you're much more resilient then as you begin to face the things of the day that come your way. Um, And not only that, but if you do that, the first person you speak to will benefit too, and the person they speak to next will benefit, and the person after that will benefit as well. That love and all positive emotions ripple through social systems, so they affect people way, way, way beyond just the initial person who birthed them and brought them around. And the difficulty for many of us in our culture, really, is that negative emotions that are designed for short-term fixes, short-term problems, many of us end up living in short-term negative emotions long-term. So part of our culture is deadlines, um, and big big long projects, and belonging to large organizations that kind of have things that they demand of us, all those kind of things effectively mean that really we spend a lot of our times living in the kind of anxiety, stress, perhaps sadness, perhaps guilt at times, um, that really was designed just to solve problems very quickly, but in our culture we have to carry them for a long time. And that's kind of one of the difficulties we have and why it's so important to talk about what do we do with our emotions. So today, I I want to talk about four practices for emotional wholeness. To be honest, I could have talked about loads. Um, My students at university listen to me bang on about this for 24 hours, and I just go through loads and loads and loads of them. But I just thought for today I'd take four. And I I want to offer four practices that are recommended by the Bible and by psychology that promote emotional well-being, that we know that on some level these things work for us. Um, And if you read the Bible, one of the things that's clear in the Bible, particularly from the Apostle Paul, who wrote all those kind of epistles, is that actually this is one of the best ways for us to find peace in life, to find peace with God. When he's writing for the Philippians, it's a book he writes, and it's full of joy, and he's kind of laughing all the way through it. He's sort of in prison at the time, but he's kind of still enjoying himself, celebrating it. And he writes the Philippians, and he says, finally, brothers and it includes sisters as well, whatever is true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The first thing he's saying is, it's really easy to get stuck on the negative. All of us do that. It's it's actually just part of being human. We have a sort of bias towards the negative. But he said, what I want you to do is to really spot the good things. Really think about those things. Really fix your mind on it. I want you to have as rich and detailed understanding of the good as you do of all the things that threaten and scare you. I want you to kind of really land on those. And that's great. The, the bit we don't often read is basically the next verse where he then goes on and says, so what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He's saying these aren't just kind of abstract concepts. I want you to think about, actually, you've seen me living them out, and I want you to imitate me in doing it. In other words, he's saying when you look around a building like this, who's really wise? Who's really good? Who's who's really grateful? Who's really loving? Practice it like them. Spot it in them and think, okay, how could I model myself on that? And Paul says that if we practice those things, if we imitate the good in others in that way, he says the God of peace will be with you. In other words, it's taking those kind of abstract concepts, turning them into practices that allows us to bring the sense of peace of God walking along with us. So I'm going to talk about four ways in which we as a community can practice our faith in a way that will contribute to the emotional health of the world around us. Two warnings just to say is firstly... Don't take this as a to-do list. I've just gone on about how stressed and busy and all that kind of thing. I'm not now going to give you 20 more things to do. Just view it as a menu. So listen, enjoy it, be gentle with yourself. And if something really lands and you go, oh yeah, that one's for me this week, pick it up and take it away. That's great. And don't pick it on the basis of guilt or obligation. Pick it on the basis of its appeal, its attractiveness. That seems natural to me. That seems doable. That seems right. That seems encouraging. And then just pick that one up. So the four I'm gonna talk about are gratitude, hope, endurance, and kindness. Gratitude, hope, endurance, and kindness. So gratitude. Emotional wholeness means appreciating what we have. Emotional wholeness means appreciating what we have. So I think sometimes we think that things will get better by us hating the way we are, and wanting to be something different. Hating the, what we have and wanting something more. In a sense, you could say that all advertising and marketing works on this basis. In other words, it says, um, you know, get this thing and you'll, you'll be great. You know, It kind of says, if you don't have this power tool or this cereal or this holiday, your life just isn't quite as good as it could be. It just sows a little seed of doubt into us in that way. And so what advertising does is it works on something that psychologists call the hedonic treadmill. Hedonic treadmill is basically the idea that um, the things you think you need to make you happy won't make you as happy as you think they will and they won't last as long as you think they will once you've got them. So what that means is that we think I need this thing to make me happy and then when we get it, we get the shoes, we get the car, we get married, whatever it is, we have kids and we think, yeah, that'll be ultimate happiness and it doesn't last quite as long as we think it will. And then we're on to the next thing. Oh, I know what we need is we now need a dog. Oh, no, we need a better car. Oh, no, we need a bigger house. Oh, no, the garden isn't big enough. And on and on and on and on on we go. Constantly pursuing this idea that never, ever satisfies us. Gerald Coates once said that advertising strips us of our dignity and sells it back to us at the price of the product. It strips us of our dignity and sells it back to us at the price of the product. That's the hedonic treadmill in action. But when we think about gratitude, gratitude helps us with that. Because when you're grateful for something, you receive it again as if for the first time, every time you're grateful. Every time you're grateful for a person in your life, every time you're grateful for the transport you have, every time you're grateful for the home that you live in or the church that you go to, it's like you're receiving it again. It's almost like you're opening the present all over again for the first time. And when you look in the Bible, that that seems to be what gratitude does in the Bible. Every time gratitude occurs in the Bible, it's usually about multiplication in some way. So if you look at the feeding of the 5,000, the famous story that appears in all the gospels about Jesus, the story where he takes a few loaves and a few fishes and feeds a multitude of people, he doesn't go, oh God, please give us more food. It says he thanked God for the food and then he distributed it and suddenly there was enough Similarly, in the Last Supper, the night just before Jesus died, where he breaks bread again, he thanks God. And it's almost like he's saying, as I break my body, there will be enough forgiveness, enough grace, enough goodness from God for everybody in this. It's almost like when you're grateful for something, you kind of multiply it. You have more, there's more there. And the interesting thing is when you read uh, the Apostle Paul, so he wrote about a third of the New Testament, all epistles, letters to different churches, and uh, sometimes people have a sort of dim view of him. They see Jesus as this sort of liberal guy who went off to college and came back with some nice ideas about loving people. It was all a bit hippie, and then Paul is really homophobic and fanatical and prejudiced and all this kind of thing. But if you actually read Paul... In Paul, there are over 50 occurrences of gratitude, of thankfulness. He's thankful to God for what God's done. He's thankful to God for the calling that's on his life. He's thankful for God, for the people, all the people around him. His letters are just full of thanks, 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 thanks. So he's living in this sense of life has been given to me as a gift. All these things are there. And what's fascinating about that is if you compare his letters to all the other letters in the Bible, in the New Testament, whether it's James, John, Peter, Jude... Hebrews, etc. Um, in Paul, we have over 50 occurrences of thankfulness. In all the others, zero. I mean, not It doesn't occur even once. So to understand some of what's going on in the Bible in the early church in terms of how the church grew and how it became a loving community, you've got to get to grips with thankfulness. What we are thankful for in our present will be part of our future. In essence, it's kind of saying this is what's good and that's what I'm bedding down into, that's the foundation of what happens next. And therefore, gratitude has become a central concept in psychological well-being. It's one, one study um, where people are asked to list at the end of the day, just three good things that happened to them that day. Just list them, remember what they're like, feel them again. And surprisingly, in many of those studies, you find that people's psychological well-being goes up. Physical exercise went up in one study. In other studies, stress, anxiety, depression go down. Just through opening themselves to gratitude, just enjoying what's good in that moment. Another approach that's been used has become called the gratitude visit, which is basically thinking about who you're grateful for. Who's contributed to your life that you haven't perhaps thanked yet? And maybe write them a letter. In some studies, the letter is laminated and people take it to that person's house, even if they have to jump on a plane to do it. And they sit there and they read the gratitude to that person. Thank you for this stuff. Thank you for what you did. But then also, gratitude can work quite well for those moments that are much more difficult. Gratitude isn't just for times when we're skipping through the daisies singing, aren't we so happy? Gratitude can also be for those days when things aren't quite so great. There's one exercise in gratitude research that says actually, think about your worst day and be thankful that today was a little bit better than that day. It's a good, good exercise for days when you don't feel particularly grateful. But one of the things I've found it is that gratitude can particularly help us in some of our darkest moments, some of our hardest times. Um, a few years back, um, my, my wife's uh, brother, Niall, my brother-in-law, um, died of cancer. Um, and uh, he'd been married two months and died, um, married knowing that he was going to die a few months later. And um, just as his death approached, all his family, uh, they're Irish, there's absolutely millions of them, gathered in the hospital and were taking turns in shifts by his bed. And because me and Marie-Claire had been through this kind of situation before with other friends and other situations of friends who'd struggled with cancer, we, we kind of knew that towards the end things would probably be quite tough and probably he would lose consciousness and we wouldn't be able to communicate anymore. So um, Marie-Claire had the wisdom to have a discussion with Niall and said, Okay, we think probably you know, for the last who knows long of your condition, we're not going to be able to talk to you anymore. You won't, we won't be able to communicate. What would you like us to say? What would you like to hear in that moment? And he said, well, I think I'd just like you to say good things about me. Just say what you've appreciated. So Marie-Claire gets a big A4 pad of paper and she goes around all her family and she just gets them all to write down all the things they love about Nile. You know, his obsession with surfing in really risky ways, um, his, his love of r- restoring tractors, his kamikaze driving. You know, all these th- things that were quirky and funny, his awful, awful sense of humor. You know, just writing down all these things. And um, uh, at about 24 hours before he died or so, he, he lost consciousness. Um, and, and at one point Marie Claire thought, well, the moment has come, it's time to, to sit down. And she got a moment alone with him in the room, and she just started to read through all these things that they'd written down. And the last one was hers that she'd written down, and she said, Niall, I want to thank you that what you've taught me is that nothing is so old, damaged, or broken that it cannot be mended, renewed, or reused. Nothing is so old, damaged, or broken that it cannot be mended, renewed, or reused, and literally at the moment that she read those words to him, he breathed his last breath, she ran out of the room, ran down the corridor to get his wife so that she could come in and just hold his hand while he, while he left. And the thing about those moments is, it's not a moment necessarily that you're grateful for, but being grateful in that moment can be one of the healthiest ways of holding on to what we've lost, holding on to what was important in that person who'd gone in that moment. I found, I found this myself uh, this year. Uh, last year at the end of May, uh, my dad died very suddenly, unexpectedly, of a heart attack. Um, woke up Sunday morning, said he wasn't feeling very well. My mum went off to church when, he, when she came back. He, he just died in his sleep um, in bed. And the funny thing for me is that when he was alive, I was really, really aware of how we were different, how I was at odds with him, how I contrasted myself. He's like that, and I'm like this. And then as a result of kind of... Um, the funeral and meeting old friends from years and years and years and getting involved with solicitors and all that kind of stuff, the thing that really began to hit me through the whole process was that now that he's gone, I can see how similar we were. You know, how grateful I am for what actually I received from him, even if there were times while he was alive, I couldn't even see that. And that's what gratitude does. It ensures that we carry the best bits of the past into the present. Even in pain, even in trauma, even in bereavement, it says there are still diamonds here that I want to carry into the rest of my life. So that's gratitude. What about hope? So hope means that in emotional wholeness we believe in a better future. Emotional wholeness means that we believe in a better future. The message of hope, if you like, if you want to put it really simply, it's just this, you can get there from here. If you ever find yourself really despairing about yourself and what's happened to your life and where you've ended up and that you never ever wanted to be where you are, maybe disappointments have hit you lately, maybe it's to do with work, maybe it's to do with family, maybe it's to do with your personal life in all kinds of different ways. Those are the places where hope arrives and helps us. Weirdly, hope helps us in the very moments where we want to actually give up on hope. That's where hope is the most useful thing. And in the Bible, where where hope fits very often in the New Testament after Jesus um, is is basically in the idea that through Jesus, through knowing Jesus, through coming to him, we actually find the hope that we can become all that we're meant to be. So Paul writes um, about this. And remember that Paul is um, a Jew. He's reflecting on the Old Testament and all the stories there. And he says this, he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints, to us. He says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word glory there means the character of God being like God, developing to become more and more like God. And Paul is saying that now that Jesus is in us, now that Christ can live among us, we have the hope that that can be true. Hope in this sense isn't just a possibility. You know, Some people say, oh, I hope for that, but they don't really mean that they hope. They just mean it could happen. In this sense, hope is a promise. It's a promise that says you can become who you're meant to be. It's the unseen creative potential for change in your current situation. I've certainly found over the years that hope has been extremely important to me, particularly when I was in my 20s. I went through a sort of period of time where things just weren't that good. And often I would sort of lapse into a period where I was sort of starting to wish I wasn't here and feeling quite depressed and feeling kind of well, we're just kind of at times kind of thinking about suicide and those kind of stuff. But you know, I I trained as a psychologist, so I basically did a bunch of self-help. I did a DIY course in therapy. Like, what do I need to do to kind of pick me out of where I've ended up? How do I help myself with this? And to be honest, it was pretty good. It worked. You know, it really lifted me. It you know made me more loving, made me more available to other people. Started to see good in the world. Um, and then they, then probably about. 15, 16 years ago, um, I'm sat in my garden here in Lincoln on a Sunday afternoon, I'm about to come to church that evening, and suddenly I just feel that familiar black bubble just kind of land on me, and I just cried out to God and said, really, you know, will this ever go away, will I ever be freed from this thing, I've done everything I possibly can. So we go to church that night feeling a bit down and uh, you just heard on the video about how we're celebrating Mark Hutton as he moves on to the next part of his ministry and Mark was speaking that night. I can't really remember what he was saying. I know I was saying about row three somewhere and um, Mark uh, at the end of his talk gave one of those really, really generic appeals. So you know when people say, if you're here this evening and you're sat in your pew and uh, you're still breathing, uh, please come forward. And we will pray for the blessing of the Lord to be on you. Um, and and I, I was a bit resistant because I was thinking, to be honest, I only respond to specific appeals. General ones don't interest me. But I just felt like that nudge inside that said, no, I think this one's for you. You need to go forward and get prayed for. And I was kind of halfway between row three and the front here, where suddenly it was almost like I got struck by lightning, fell to the floor, and was just shaking away. And with apologies to those of you who may have seizures, I honestly thought I was having an epileptic fit. I was thinking to myself, oh, this is what an epileptic fit feels like. I've, I've always wondered. Um, but weirdly what happened is I shook there. It is, it's almost like I just felt like some dark weight came off me. It was like I was just freed from something. Something went away. It was almost like that prayer I'd prayed in the garden was answered in that moment. Um, and, and since then, I can go back to that dark place if I want to. I'm still free, I'm still allowed to go there if I want to, Um, but I've never felt compelled to go there ever again. You know, it's not inevitable. I don't have to go to that place. And when I see it coming, I have a decision about which way I'm gonna go. And quite often I will say to people, particularly, you know, if this is you and you're currently in a situation where you feel depressed or frustrated or disappointed and things are down, you're a bit burnt out, I often say to people hope basically means you just don't know what's around the corner. You don't even know how God will answer even the simplest prayer that you put in his hands. And hope is just the idea that there will be a workaround, that that you can get there from here. So gratitude, hope, let's talk about endurance. Emotional wholeness makes suffering okay. Emotional wholeness makes suffering okay. If, if there's a theme to everything I ever speak about or do as a psychologist, I think it all boils down to making pain acceptable, making suffering part of life, that this is okay. It will happen and there is hope in it and we can work through it. Because sometimes I find that, that there's almost like a myth that says being a good Christian or even being a good person um, means always feeling good. You know, I've always got to feel good. The thing we've got to keep in mind is that a life without fear, a life without sadness, a life without anger, that's not emotional wholeness. That's brain damage. So that's half is kind of missing. Those kind of painful things, they're part of life, they're a necessary part of the way we are. And so endurance is the art of suffering usefully. It doesn't spend time panicking, asking, why am I suffering? Um, It rather asks, what am I gaining or learning from my current pain? Sometimes we can't see it in the moments of pain. It might come later, we might get that bit later, but it's basically saying, what, what am I learning here? What's going on that will help me? In psychological terms, we, we call it post-traumatic growth or sometimes adversarial growth. It's the idea that people who even go through quite painful traumas still will describe being more wise, having deeper compassion, finding stronger spiritual connection, being more courageous, learning to live in their vulnerability, finding a deeper sense of their core and what they're committed to, that as a result of kind of enduring through some of those difficult things, some people will say, actually, it was hard, but I did learn something in the midst of it all. Uh, James, the epistle writer, um, wrote his letter and he starts it by saying, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I I, I read that verse um, about 25 years ago um, in my bedsit when I was doing my doctorate in clinical psychology. Um, Me, I told my friend about it, he said we need to do some research on that in clinical psychology so off we went and accidentally from reading that verse in James, uh, together we became the European experts on post-traumatic growth almost overnight. Um, So sometimes you kind of get these principles and you take them out and you discover they're true um, way beyond the Bible context. So we talked about gratitude, talked about hope, talked about endurance, finally kindness, fourth practice. Emotional wholeness means not being too cool to be kind. Not being too cool to be kind. Because really to be kind requires a little bit of tenderness, requires a little bit of vulnerability in us that's moved by the plight of other people. Kindness is love in action. Some people will call it compassion. And in those moments we we decenter ourselves, we overcome our self-consciousness, and we step out of that towards the other. Sometimes we even take compassion and kindness and we bring it to ourselves rather than judging in all kinds of different ways. We say, how would I view myself more kindly in this situation? Very very powerful. And the thing is, it is really good for us to care for other people in the right way. Um, In in the Acts of the Apostle again Paul quotes Jesus. He quotes Jesus in a a statement that we don't have any record of Jesus saying this so we just have to trust Paul that Jesus did and he quotes Jesus saying it's more blessed to receive. So it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's, It's blessed to receive too but it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when you look at studies of people who intentionally care for others, I mean in a bounded way, not frantically trying to care for everybody, everywhere, all the same time, but where people actually in an intentional way have to care for something else, for someone else. Um, even weirdly, studies where, say, um, people in uh, retirement homes um, are given plants to look after. They actually have a huge effect on people's well being, just the act of caring and being compassionate towards another. And um, if you want to practice this, one of the most effective ways that comes out in psychological science is some people will say, well, have a kindness day. That doesn't mean you can be cruel the rest of the week. Have a kindness day where you basically say, um, "This, this, this week, Thursday will be my kindness day. Plan up to that thing. How am I going to do it? Who's it going to be for? What will be the right thing to do for them? And then having done it, enjoy the fact that you did that exceptional moment of kindness. Quite often, we'll do it anonymously, secretly, and sometimes that's even more fun because people are bewildered about where this kind thing came from. Uh, One of my favourite stories about that, I haven't got time to tell, but um, we we once sat in a car park and we saw this family that looked particularly depressed and we prayed for them and then we found out a few days later that actually one of the children in the family was actually in my wife's class at school and was mad on Harry Potter but they quite, quite straight as a family didn't have the money to go and see Harry Potter so we secretly bought them tickets and posted it through their letterbox and uh, he came came back to school and was really excited, saying, somebody's given me tickets to Harry Potter. And Marie Claire said, who do you think you did it? And he said, I think angels did it. (laughs) So sometimes kindness is just the most wonderful thing. So we've talked about gratitude, hope, endurance, kindness. The worst way to hear what I'm saying is to hear it as a to-do list. If anything, I would recommend hear it as a to-be list. Which of these things really connects with you and you go, yeah, that's me and I could do that this week and just that, that's it, you've got it, you know, that's the thing to do. The best way to view it is through a lens of curiosity and experiment. Jesus loves you, he's poured out his grace for you. Think about all the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of ways you could live that out. All the ways you could express that love that you've received And sometimes people will say, but I don't have time for that, I can't do it. I I would say that that some of these are quite prayerful practices, praying in hope, praying in love, uh, praying uh, in endurance. And I would say that actually life all the time is giving you many moments to pause where you can try these kind of practices. It's just we don't usually see them because we call them queuing at the supermarket or a traffic jam or Windows 10, you know, things that are just a bit slow and we have to wait for them to work properly. Life is always offering us short rests and mini Sabbaths if we know how to take them. And just finally to say that a short talk can't cover everything, I can't cover every caveat. So if anything I've said judges you in some way, just ignore it, that one probably wasn't for you. But if there's one thing you wanna take away that helps, that's great. And whoever you are, wherever you're at, I think in the end, if you're just gonna take one thing away, take this away, that Jesus calls us into peace. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and a heavy burden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That seemingly placid Bible verse has called so many people, as we look through world history, into transformation of society. Saying, I'm called into this rest, and out of that rest, I will now go on to spread that goodness around the world. Doesn't sound so bad, does it?